I'm San Francisco Chronicle columnist Heather Knight, and you're listening to Fifth and Mission. What's with the deluge of stories from the East Coast media about San Francisco being over? There was a New York Times article just the other day headlined, They Can't Leave the Bay Area Fast Enough. Peter Hartlob, pop culture critic for the Chronicle and host of the Total SF podcast, has words for the authors of stories like this. And he has his own rebuttal out now on all the other times over the past 170 years when people were sure San Francisco was over. Hint, it wasn't. Peter Hartlob, welcome to the podcast, the Fifth in Mission podcast. The Fifth in Mission podcast. We usually do Total SF together. Um, I'm very happy to be here with you to talk about uh, Exodus from SF. <laughs> yes. So we especially want to... Um, touch on a recent New York Times article that got San Francisco all abuzz calling us over. And can you recount some of the most notable parts of that story? I know you were big on the $15 burrito. Yeah, I mean, it was a a, a fine story. Um, you know, when you get down to it, there was some good reporting in it. But it's sort of just this trend that we see where it's a story and often the New York Times or Washington Post basically putting the argument forward that San Francisco is over, that has San Francisco lost its soul? I mean, and usually the headlines, you know, saying that outright, and then the story goes down and talks to some well-selected people who haven't had a good experience with San Francisco, and then make an argument that there's some fundamental change to the city. So this most recent one was headlined, They Can't Leave the Bay Area Fast Enough, um, <laughs> talks. Wow, that's pretty blunt. Yeah, yeah. It talks about the rising tax rates. Some people are leaving. Tech leaders leaving. Starting Facebook groups to talk about leaving California. And uh, and and someone in the article was uh, really happy to have paid six dollars for a burrito when he said that the last one he paid for in San Francisco was fifteen dollars. Which that really set me off because I've never paid fifteen dollars <laughs> for a burrito. Yeah, you had a funny tweet saying, what was the side he ordered on his burrito? Another burrito. (laughs) (laughs) You could work at it and do a $15 burrito. Like if you add extra guacamole, prawns, maybe have like a chili relleno in the burrito. I mean, you can do it, but you have to really work for it. Yeah, it's not like every burrito is $15. But I feel like we've had a deluge of these kinds of stories for as long as I can remember, even before the pandemic and the supposed tech exodus, there was the wildfire smoke meant we were over or the homelessness crisis meant we were over. And about a million stories referring to feces on the sidewalks meant we were over. So I feel like this is just a trend that doesn't stop. Why do you think that so many East Coast publications are so obsessed with us? You know, I think it's always been like California's the dream. And there's this fake California on TV, like Beverly Hills 90210 or, you know, whatever movie you go see that shows California is just all these beautiful people sunbathing. So I think they want to knock that down, but they end up going in the other direction. And then basically laying forth this California that is this sort of equally not accurate in the other direction in that um, everybody's unhappy, everybody's struggling, um, and and kind of just ignores a lot of the really beautiful, wonderful things about living here. Yeah. Um, and so you've responded to this deluge of articles by creating kind of your own mini beat within your um, pop culture realm, um, rebutting this, these stories. And um, I think a lot of readers I've talked to consider you one of the greatest defenders of San Francisco. And what do you feel when you see yet another one of these articles? And why do you take so much pr- 
pride and or feel such an obligation to stick up for San Francisco? You know, I I love it here. Um, my grandparents immigrated here. My my family that I grew up around were all really tied to San Francisco. Even when I moved away to San Francisco, I remember I had jobs in Los Angeles um, really early in my career. And a lot of my friends wanted to get to the Washington Post or the New York Times. And I just wanted to get back to San Francisco. I mean, I just absolutely love it here. And it's always been presented as a place that has its ups and downs. San Francisco is in a constant state of reinvention. Um, you know, 20 years ago, I decided I couldn't afford to live there and I moved to the East Bay, but I still love the Bay Area. I still love San Francisco and I still think it's that beautiful city that my grandparents arrived in. It's just constantly changing, reinventing itself and finding new kinds of beauty and also new kinds of struggles. And what kind of feedback do you usually get when you write your rebuttals? Really good locally. Um, I've lost a couple friends, and with this one coming out tomorrow, I may, <laughs> I may get blocked by someone who who uh, is a an acquaintance. You know, I mean, I, I, I get negative feedback outside of the Bay Area. I generally get pretty positive feedback in the Bay Area because I think people are tired of it. Um, I really noticed this start in 2014, and um, there was an article um, in the Guardian UK that was, you know, has San Francisco lost its soul? But it was right around there's this whole cluster of articles. And Joe Garofoli, the politics writer, and I wrote an article basically giving New York writers advice on how to write these really cliched articles when they come here. And I, mm -hmm. I was worried about it. You know, first of all, I'm thinking, well, I, I don't ever want to work in New York, so that's fine, but I'm going to get hit by a lot of journalists, people locally seem to love it. So whenever whenever I think yeah. these things get out of control, I'm always thinking in my head, what's a new way to kind of write a story and sort of give a little bit of the reality of the area um, along with, uh, you know, these these stories that get 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 passed around from the East Coast media that are really negative about what's going on here. I just had a flashback. I think those 2014 articles were when everybody was talking about $4 toast in San Francisco. <laughs> yes. Do it's you remember all, that? Yes. Instead of the $15 burrito. Yeah, it's I think it was eight seven or eight dollar toast. I'd have to look back. It was the avocado toast or the toast. I don't know. <laughs> it's always something new. You know, they always hitch on yeah. to something something. They always tend to call the same types of people. I think this latest uh, uh article in the New York Times, you know, did kind of found some new ways to to show what's going on here. But um a lot of times the articles are really um, really simplistic. Uh, people are getting off a plane and not doing much work, or or they live here and and are not doing much work. I think to sort of just <laughs> present this area as something that I just don't think that it is, and I think history shows that. Right. So that leads to um, your latest story, which is awesome. Highly recommend everybody read it. SFChronicle.com. Um, kind of a rebuttal to this latest story, but also uh, recounting all the other times that people said San Francisco was over. And I love that you have um, the conclusion from all of these other eras. Was San Francisco over? No. <laughs> so I wanted to run down <laughs> a few of the examples. We won't go through all of them because we want readers to be surprised. But um, I'm going to give you a few other times in history when everybody thought San Francisco was done. And you tell me why 
and what the outcome was. So one of them was the gold rush. Why did everybody think that the city was over? <laughs> well, this was the this was the first time I think that certainly uh, uh, first time that that's been covered in newspapers that San Francisco was over. Um, 1852, people were pouring to the city just as the gold yield dropped, and you had all these miners here who, um, you know, basically mining had been turned into an industry. They couldn't be instant uh, uh, rich people. They, they, you know, the miners who came early had disposable income and spent it in San Francisco and sort of made San Francisco a home base. So right about 1855 to 1857, these miners who, you know, couldn't really make a life in San Francisco, um, went out to agriculture. And that's how a lot of the agriculture in Sonoma and Napa Valley started. Now, the Chronicle wasn't around back then, and I don't think the East Coast media was paying as much attention to us. But I think that would have been the first time that like, the New York <laughs> Times or Washington Post wrote that we were over, when all the miners yes. were like, I'm not going to spend my money here. I'm going to go work on the farms in Sonoma. So that was number one. So, Peter, was San Francisco indeed over? <laughs> San Francisco was not over. Uh, no. <laughs> no. Okay. Now let's run down um, a huge catastrophe, the 1906 earthquake. Uh, what happened and why did people think the city was over? So this was the spark for the story that I wrote, because um, all of these stories that, that the East Coast media tends to write about San Francisco being over takes just this moment in time and decides that that's just, you know, going to be carried out into the future, and that's the way it's going to be. And that's what happened with the earthquake, 1906 earthquake. If you took the two weeks after the earthquake, um, everybody was taking off. They're like asking railway people, you know, get me to any city except San Francisco. But then two months later, the Chronicle reported that they're coming back, not only in large numbers, but they're bringing people with them. Um, I have a quote here, a large majority of these are from men who left in such a mad haste at the first sound of alarm. They are complaining the conditions are much worse in the East than they are out here. So these are people getting back on the railway and coming back. We had a story about it. <laughs> these throngs of people returning. And San Francisco, as I'm sure you're about to ask me, was not over. And, and, and everybody you spoiled thought, my question. Yeah, everybody <laughs> thought it would be over. I mean, think about it. 1906, half the city is burnt down. If you said San Francisco was over, you had a pretty good point. It was not over. It came back. They rebuilt it better than ever. And mm -hmm. it became a world-class city after that. Not and over. Not, <laughs> yeah, it wasn't uh, too long after that that we hosted the World's Fair that went off without a hitch. Yeah, yeah. And and. You know, we're kind of joking about this, but I mean, I think this has always been the push and pull between San Francisco and Paris and New York. And we've always had a chip on our shoulder because we're almost like the new money. We kind of became mm -hmm. a world class city after they did. And and certainly, you know, early in, in the city's history, we were trying to be like New York. Golden Gate Park was us trying to have Central Park. But now that we're there, now that we're this world class city, it almost feels like the other cities want to take it away from us. So, Because mm -hmm. we're younger and more beautiful. <laughs> yes, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be right back after a short break. You can support Fifth and Mission and the newsroom that creates it by signing up for unlimited Chronicle access at sfchronicle.com slash pod. Okay, then we'll jump in time to the summer of love. What happened and why did people think San Francisco was over? 
Okay, first of all, and we've written about this, we do, do this with our anniversaries of the Summer of Love, which is basically us revealing that the Summer of Love kind of sucked. I mean, it was not like this totally fun flowers in their hair thing during summer 1967. 1966 um, was great. People were having a great time. It got around. And then all this flood of people started coming. And you still had this really conservative city that literally like voted whether to put a sign up, hippies don't enter. You know, I mean, it was, <laughs> and there, there was a lot of, they, it was a crime story. I mean, really, the summer of love was a crime story. It was the police being overzealous and a lot of runaways here and a lot of sadness and, And bad things happen. And by the end of 1967, all the real hippies had moved to Marin uh, County or like Woodside. Grateful Dead, gone. Jefferson Airplane, I think, were the only band who had members who stayed. And I'm thinking like if the New York Times were to write that story in the summer of 67, San Francisco would so be over. Our soul would Hmm. be just like totally depleted. But that counterculture history um, was something that became embedded in us. And now, you know, years and years, decades later, it's still part of us. So even though the people moved away and it was this bad thing, and in this moment in time, the summer of love was really a low point for the city, it ended up that we got past it um, and San Francisco was better for it. Um, it, it it's, hmm. it's part of us now. So San Francisco was not over then either? Um, no, and I, and I quote in the, um, in the uh, article... Um, in my was San Francisco over section, a uh, <laughs> Grateful Dead lyric, the grass ain't greener, the wine ain't sweeter, either side of the hill. That's uh, yeah. Jerry Garcia. So okay. uh, it was not over, Heather. <laughs> okay. Um, moving just a few years ahead, uh, the 1970s crime spree. When you look back at that decade, it just seems like it was one long horror film in San Francisco. So tell me about that. Yeah, I mean, the 1970s were awful, and I I have memories of um, little snippets of it, but certainly people who are older than us who lived through it. Um, It was, uh, you know, a modern record for homicides in four consecutive years in the 70s. From 1974 to 77, it just kept getting greater and greater until there were 142 homicides in 77. Um, you know, you had the Dirty Harry movie just giving this impression that it was this crime-ridden place. The murders, of course, of uh, uh, Mayor Moscone and Harvey Milk, the Zodiac Killer. Um, mm-hmm. It was a horrible time. I mean, you think about the stories that would have been written about that time. And that's certainly an example I give when people are writing stories that San Francisco's soul is gone and it's over because rich people are leaving because they don't like the tax rate. I'm like, go back to you <laughs> yeah. know when there were 147 murders. But you know what? Even then, there was this idea that the suburbs were better, but crime was raising in the suburbs too. Mm-hmm. So even that was a little bit of a of a fake out and and you know within years things got better and San Francisco rebounded. Yeah. I think there's a feeling in San Francisco now that crime is way up and there's a lot of controversy over whether we have the right district attorney and whether SFPD is doing a good job and um people complaining about tons of property crime which is true but when you compare violent crime to previous decades it's just no comparison. Not even close. And and the problems are almost incomparable. I mean, the problems that we have right now with homelessness, um, certainly with um, gentrification, with um, people, you know, who are in the service industry not being able to live anywhere near 
close to San Francisco. You know, these are huge, huge problems. And um, but but they're not like it's not the first time the city's had huge problems. The city's mm-hmm. constantly working through problems and coming out the other side arguably better. And I, I think that can happen now. And I also think we need to keep in perspective that while shoplifting and um, vandalizing storefronts and breaking windows is horrible and it shouldn't be happening, there were much worse crime years for San Francisco yeah, definitely. In the past. Definitely. Yeah. And and you look at the Chronicle. I mean, there were times when our front page was just one crime after the other. You know, I mean, it, it was just uh, uh, there were some really, really rough times in the 70s, I think, uh, uh, you know, were one of the peaks of that. Yeah. Then you also talked about the first dot com boom. That was when I moved to the city in 1999. Um, I remember my roommate was actually um working at Webvan, one of the classic, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> along with Pets.com, um, internet companies that failed. But um, tell me about why people thought San Francisco was dead after that. Well, you know, I mean, it's it's Pets.com, first of all, is just the greatest punchline. Because you remember that little sock puppet? <laughs> that sock puppet, yep. <laughs> yeah. the sock puppet. And, and then when that was gone, that was just such a symbol. Um yeah, commercial vacancies rose to 20% in 2001, which everybody thought was, you know, this horrible, horrible number that, um, you know, would never be matched. And here we are in a pandemic. Um, who knows where we'll come out with that. But um, I remember used office furniture was never less expensive. Like you could get, yeah. a, you just walk into Soma and someone, you could walk in a building and someone would be selling incredibly awesome office chairs. Um, young people were moving out a lot like, you know, what you're hearing now, you know, I mean, a lot of young people were like, I don't want any part of this. I can make my way somewhere else. And, um, and certainly I thought, well, there's not going to be another dot-com boom here, but, you know, less, Lo and behold. <laughs> less than a decade later, it happens again. And, uh-huh. and, uh, you know, that's just, again, part of the cycle of San Francisco. So I'm taking it San Francisco was not over then either? So not over, Heather. (laughs) (laughs) I actually thought um, after that first dot-com boom was some of, maybe just because of my age, I was in my early and mid-20s, was some of the best times of my life in the city. Like it just got so fun. I had I had fun too, and and honestly, that was you know the year like two thousand or two thousand and one was a year where I decided I can't afford to live here, you know, and then I moved mm-hmm. to the East Bay, but I still love San Francisco. It's part of me and my family and my history, um, and honestly, like the dot com boom wasn't the first time I looked back and found stories from um, like the seventies and early eighties where people were saying San Francisco was over because Silicon Valley business was moving out of San Francisco to Silicon Valley and even places in like Contra Costa. And Mm -hmm. people thought, Oh, the business is leaving San Francisco. It's over. You know, the suburbs are the new thing. And, and, you know, sure that happened and there's, you know, big business outside of San Francisco, but San Francisco's remained at the center and, and, uh, you know, has 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 rebirthed a couple times since then. Yeah. And I've noticed that these stories from the East Coast media often leave out what we're doing right. Like um, this past year, San Francisco has been, you know, a shining light in terms of American cities dealing with the coronavirus. And um, according to UCSF doctors, if the country had our city's death rate, 300,000 Americans would still be alive. But it doesn't seem like we get credit for the good stuff. Yeah. And and I also feel like, you know, when, when people leave and I've noticed this, honestly, I've noticed this at the newspapers I've worked at, you know, when 
people leave. This is a hard place to live. And mm-hmm. when you leave, it's easier um, if you can create this narrative that it's the city's fault, that it's some new yeah. thing, that the city failed you, and it's not just you moving on with your life and finding a place where you're more comfortable. And I don't think people want to do that. And I think some of mm. these stories are born out of that. I mean, certainly this most recent story interviews a lot of people like that who I think are trying to justify, you know, why they didn't make it here. And I can tell you, I didn't make it in San Francisco. You know, I had to move out. I still get to work there, but um, I'm not a city resident. But Well, you practically are. I practically am. I, I Honorary. Um, <laughs> uh, but... I just think a lot of people, you know, are dealing with that. And that's something they've been dealing with for decades, for more mm-hmm. than a century. And I don't think you can take one article and say, okay, here we are. The city's lost its soul. Okay, it's over. Okay. You know, I mean, it, and that's how it reads. You know, a lot of times the headline makes it worse. Um, yeah. You know, they can't leave the Bay Area fast enough. I mean, you read <laughs> that and it's just like this indictment. And, you know, when I think there's a lot more nuances. Um, it also doesn't... It- always leaves out that you know people who can't afford to leave or who are rooted here for some other reason and it makes it seem like everyone just can willy-nilly pack up and and move to an entirely new city overnight or something yeah yeah um so what do you think san francisco is going to be like in a year i think we're going into like our roaring 20s and i had the two best conversations for a future article in the chronicle with two people who um are in their hundreds and remember the Spanish in flu hundreds. in their hundreds, um, 105 and 107, Dixie Whoa. and George. Um, they oh don't my gosh, I want you to come back on and talk about that. Yeah, no, we'll, we'll, and I have audio from them too, so we'll let them talk. But what I loved about it is they talked about the Spanish flu and um, the difficulties that that 18, uh, 1918 influenza caused. And, and then I talked to them for most of the time about all the fun stuff they did after that. And the fun stuff was in their teens and then as they kind of built their lives and hearing them talk about, you know, yeah, I had this horrible flu, you know, the neighbor boy died. But then 10 years later, you know, 20 years later, this guy's walking up the the Golden Gate Bridge while it's under construction. He just like wow. walked up the, the half-constructed uh, suspension wire up to this box and called his mother, you know, and, and just talking about the places they lived and the places they worked. Um, Dixie worked at 140 Montgomery and looked out her window and just watched them building the Bay Bridge. Um, the, the fun they had, the fun that the city was, it, it just, it was a reminder that, you know, when really bad things happen in San Francisco, we have this unique ability, the Phoenix is on the flag to bounce back and not only make the city better, but have some great times. So I have no doubt, and I'm super optimistic, and I know you are too, and we bang this drum, but I have no doubt that even with all the challenges we have ahead, um, parallel to that are going to be some real positive good times and good memories. And I certainly wouldn't want to be, you know, one of those people who can't leave the Bay Area fast enough right now, because I think we're going to have yeah. a really, really positive, um, fulfilling and filled with joy couple of years in San Francisco. I think those people will be eating their $6 burritos and reading <laughs> our stories in the Chronicle with envy. 
Yeah, I don't know. I, I'm still looking for that $15 burrito. A few people did send me like they were like, hey, over here in the marina, if you order prawns, your burrito is $15. And I'm like, all right, you got me. Checkmate. <laughs> well, on that note, thank you for coming on Fifth Admission. It's always fun to talk to you. Always fun to talk to you. Nice to speak with you again. And um, I'm glad we're both in San Francisco. I think it's going to be a fun few years. Thank you to Peter Hartlob for joining me today. You can hear him talking about life in San Francisco and interviewing the people who make it unique on his podcast, Total SF. I often join him there. Get it wherever you get Fifth and Mission. Thanks to King Kaufman for producing this episode and to you for listening. 